Seated. Good morning. It is good to be with you. It's good to be with old friends. Chris and Jeannie and my wife Jen and I got to have dinner last night and catch up, and it's good to, it's, it's such a blessing, as you all know, to see how friends grow in the Christian life and do things and how the Lord calls us and uses us. It is especially wonderful to be here with this congregation that the Lord is using so mightily here in the city. Specifically, I'd I'd just like to say thank you before I get going. Thank you for the continued partnership that you have had with our seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary in New York City. Um, I can tell you as someone who has a very similar relationship with the church down in Washington, D.C. We, we can't do what we do. We can't train up pastors and other church leaders, counselors, and missionaries without churches like Central Church coming alongside us and making it possible for us to do this, particularly in these urban centers like New York and Washington. It's just such a gift to be with you all this morning. Now, our reading comes out of Psalm 119, and as you know, this is kind of the Moby Dick of the Psalter. This is the big one. 176 verses. It's divided up into 22 stanzas, all built around the Hebrew alphabet. We're actually in the fifth stanza, for those of you who are interested. So this is the uh, hey stanza. Hey is the fifth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Dalet, Hey. And so we're in the hey stanza, and it's in this part of the poem that the, the poet is stopping for a moment, he's reflecting on a particular aspect of God's Word. What he's saying specifically here is how much he yearns for God's Word. And because this is Hebrew poetry, the way it works is that you say a similar thing over and over again to kind of get into every different aspect of the thing. So notice that as we read verses 33 to 40, notice how the psalmist is saying a specific thing but in slightly different ways, to kind of get all the way around into every nook and cranny of the idea that he's trying to express, particularly here, his yearning for the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 33 to 40 says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my ear to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise, that you may be feared. Turn away the approach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts, and your righteousness give me life. Let's pray. Our Lord, as we come to you this Sunday morning, I pray that you would bless us, that you'd have mercy upon us. We give thanks, Lord, that as we've prayed and sung already, you receive us as those who have been washed in the blood. You receive us as as righteous and as beloved as your Son himself, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that as we hear your word, I pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that appreciate it for what it is, minds that can understand what it has to say to us, and mouths that can respond in the only way that's appropriate, its response of praise and worship. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, actions speak 
louder than words. That's what the article said. It was about a politician who had gotten into office running on an anti-corruption platform, and yet he was, of course, found to be taking bribes. One voter in his district was interviewed about the politician's recent troubles, and he said, actions speak louder than words. It's a cliche, I know. I come from Washington, D.C. We're, we're, we're a city of words. We talk a lot about the fact that actions speak louder than words. Why is that? Why do we say that? Why is it such a common phrase that if I say actions speak, you know how to end the phrase louder than words? Why is that? Because this saying is really kind of a comment, isn't it? It's a comment on the human capacity to use words, to use our mouths to deceive. I'm not talking about open lies either. I'm just talking about the way we talk. We often speak and say things that we do not mean just to accomplish some kind of particular end. Think about it. How, how many times have you said something just so that you can get somebody off your back? How many times have you carefully worded a response so that you can avoid further conflict in the future or maybe even just further conversation? How often have you found yourself in a situation in which you'll say anything to escape? You know, words are great escape hatches. All you need to say is something like this. Hey, it was, it was really great to see you, but I've I got to get going. Even though it wasn't great to see them and you've got nowhere to go. <laughs> right? or, or, or the common one around my town is this. Hey, let's, let's do lunch. Come on, hey, let's go. Hey, let's do lunch sometime. It's a great way of getting out of a conversation, right? As a matter of fact, many of our international students at RTS will comment on the fact that one of the first things they have to learn when they move to the United States is that when people say, let's do lunch, don't pull out your calendar. They don't really want to plan lunch. It's a way of moving on. But you see, actions are different. Actions require commitment. They require effort. They require preparation and foresight. They require sacrifice. You have to think about the other person. You have to anticipate their needs. You have to take action and take responsibility for those actions. Imagine how well a marriage or even a friendship would work if the only way you showed affection was with words. You just said, I love you. You, know, you tell your spouse, I love you. I, I, just, I just love you. I love you. I love you so much. But there's no dinners out. There's no hugs. There's no kisses. There's no touch. There's no caress. Sooner or later, probably, the relationship is going to self-destruct. You see, our love, our friendships, all of our meaningful human relationships need to be nurtured by actions as well as words. That's how human words work. But that's not how God's words work. That's how human words work. It's not how God's words work. God's words are different. We don't treat God's words like human words. We don't discount them. We don't, we don't kind of set them aside. We don't take them with a grain of salt because his words are fundamentally different than our words. That's what I love about Psalm 119, this, this great Moby Dick of the Psalter. It's a long extended poem. It's a meditation on the word of the Lord. That's actually probably why it's organized around the alphabet. You see, how he's, see, you see what he's doing there? He's saying... God's word, and then he's organizing the poem around the building blocks of words, right? God's word 
is something to be treasured, to be held close, to be yearned for, and to be meditated upon. As a matter of fact, even in the passage that we're looking at here, the psalmist is using multiple different words to talk about what he means by God's word. Notice that he he uses the word in verse 34 of the law, right? This is that Hebrew word Torah, right? The law, and that that can mean the Ten Commandments. Sometimes people even use that today to mean the Ten Commandments or, or maybe just the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, or maybe as the Apostle Paul uses it, he uses it to talk about the whole of the Old Testament. He calls it the Torah. But no matter how you look at it, it's, it's used in syn- you know, synonymously with these multiple different words that are basically talking about what we now call God's special revelation, his word to us. Notice you see a bunch of synonyms in this passage. He says Torah in verse 34, rules in verse 39, testimonies in verse 36, commandments, verse 35, statutes, verse 33, precepts, verse 40, promise, verse 38. I don't think he's talking about multiple different things here. He's all talking about how God reveals himself to us through the power of his word. They're all used interchangeably, and it's not just in this stanza, it's throughout the whole poem. I think one thing that we can say about it is that the psalmist is very enamored with God's words. He's enamored with what God has to say, how he instructs, what he commands, the ways that he testifies about himself. It's nothing short of an infatuation. Notice, by the way, we wouldn't talk this way about human words, would we? We don't talk the way that he talks about God's words. We wouldn't talk that way about human words. Would you ever go to someone and say, teach me your statutes so that I may keep them to the end? Or give me understanding that I may keep your commands to me, your law, and observe it with my whole heart. We'd see there, we think there's something wrong. You, you shouldn't treat human words this way. And yet the psalmist thinks it's entirely appropriate to treat God's words this way. So why? That's, that's what I want to talk about this morning. Why, why does the psalmist respond to God's words with this kind of infatuation, this, this enamoring? Why, why is he so in love and yearning for God's word? I'm going to argue it's because God's word is true, it's because it's powerful, and because it's present. Okay, it's a Presbyterian church after all. I need three points. Okay, So true, powerful, and present. Notice I didn't find a word like perfect, powerful, and present. I didn't do three P's. I did true. Okay, so I'm keeping, it's kind of consistent here. All right, so notice, true, powerful, and present. Let's start with the first point here. I want to talk about how God's word is true. And not only is it true, it's true in an authoritative way. In other words, it has, it has a say over us. God's word is true because God is true. Moses tells us in Numbers 23, God is not a man. Notice he's saying the same thing that we've been talking about. God is not a man that he lies. Okay, God's word are not like human words and that they can deceive. Notice the author of Hebrews doubles down on this. He says it's impossible. This is Hebrews 6 verse 18. It's impossible for God to lie. Why? He's not constrained by it. You might say, well, this is, this is, you know, he's almighty. Can't he do all things? No, no, he's not constrained by lying. It's that he is positively the God of truth. It's impossible for him to lie. That's not his M.O. It's not who he is. 
And this truth gives God's word an authority that no other author can claim. Notice that in Psalm 119, verse 33, there's an assumption of the truth and the authority of God's word. Notice he doesn't say, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and then I'll consider them in light of what I know from my own insights, and I'll mull it over and find the useful tidbits that I can apply to my life. What does he say? Teach me your statutes, and I will keep them to the end. The assumption is that God's words are true. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. I remember when I was five years old, I was driving with my grandparents through the countryside. They had a house down in the Outer Banks, and we were driving back up to Virginia Beach. If you've ever done that drive, you know you go through a lot of fields and stuff, and we were on a wide open country road, and, and I wiggled out of my backseat seatbelt and I got up on my knees and I, I rolled down the window because it was just so beautiful outside and I just stuck my whole face out the window. I was, I was really hanging out the window. And I remember my grandfather yelling back and I could barely hear him over the wind and he said, Scotty, Scotty, get back in. Get, get, get your seatbelt on. That's not safe. And I had a brilliant response. I said, I said, Grandpa, I don't have to listen to you. You're not my dad. Okay? I, I found out later, to my chagrin, that my father didn't share that same sentiment. You see, in Psalm 119, there's no question about the authority right, of God's words, the merits of God's words. The question is not, should I keep your statutes? Are you my dad? It's not that. It's, how can I keep your statutes? How do I get the ability to keep your statutes. See, the value and the authority is assumed. And that's the foundation of the whole psalm. God's word is not lacking. It's the psalmist who's lacking. He's the one who needs God's word. God's word doesn't need him. So the first thing I want to point out is why do we yearn for God's word? Because it's true. It's perfect. It's good. Second, it's powerful. God's word is powerful. It, 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 God's words speak louder than actions, at least louder than our actions, because God's word is action. God's word does stuff. I know, I know human language can do stuff too. We can hurt with our words. We can even do things like say, you know, I, I hereby pronounce you man and wife. And by pronouncing that, right, when you say that, what are you doing? You're doing a thing. I can say, I christen thee, you know, the, you know, the Titanic, right? I'm, by saying it, I'm doing it. But we're not talking about that with God's words. God's words actually accomplish actions in the world around them. It never returns void. Think about when God creates the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say that he sat down and kind of molded things together with his hands. What does he say? He said, let there be light. And there's light. Let the waters be separated, and they're separated. You see, when God does stuff, he does it through his word. And the power of God's word is not a tame power. It's not a magic that we can manipulate and control by some kind of ritual. We can't make God do what we want. He's not our vending machine God. And for this reason, when God's word is on display, when we see the power of it, the response is not often, well, there, finally I got the thing I wanted. The response is usually one of fear. 
Notice verse 38, confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. It might sound odd to us. We think, no, if God's word does what it's supposed to do, then I should be happy, I should be relieved. And yet we have to acknowledge that as creatures before the creator, when we are confronted with the power of our God's word, the response is often fear. Yeah, think about the story of the disciples when they're in the boat. It's, it's told both in Luke chapter 6 and Mark chapter 5. When they're in the boat with Jesus and there's a storm that rises up and the waves are coming over and the, and the boat's about to flood and the disciples go to Jesus who's sleeping in the back of the boat and they say, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? Don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus stands up without a word to them, walks up to the front of the boat. And what does he do? He says, peace, be still. And what do the wind and the waves do? They go, they quiet out. Notice, by the way, Jesus doesn't say, in the name of the Father in heaven, peace, be still. Jesus doesn't have to claim the Father's authority to speak to the wind and the waves. He does it on his own authority. And whenever I read that story, I think the disciples must have been cheered, right? They cheered and they rejoiced and said, how wonderful is Jesus' power on our behalf. That's not what it says. Here's a, here's a refresher for Chris from Greek. When the storm was coming over the sides of the boats, at least in the Gospel of Mark, when the storm was coming over the side of the boats, it says that they were phobomed, right? Pho phobia, right? They had fear. You know what they are after Jesus calms the wind and the waves? They are megaphobon. They are more afraid. You see, the wind and the waves was scary, but they say, who is this? who is in the boat with us. So God's word is authoritative and it's true. It's also powerfully, perfectly powerful. It does stuff. It doesn't return void. But thirdly, God's word is with us. It's present. It's here. It's now. It's accessible to us. It's accessible to the psalmist in a way. There's something that's quite startling about Psalm 119 that scholars have noted that as you read the psalmist talking about God's word, he doesn't seem to be talking about a scroll or a book. He says things like this, when I awake, there you are with me, God's word. When I'm walking along the way in the valley of the shadow of death, that's Psalm 23, of course, but he's talking about being in the valley and, and there's fear and death all around and marauders. He says, you protect me, God's word. It's very personal language. You see, in the ancient context, this sort of thing would have been incredibly rare. The gods of the ancient world did not walk with you and hold you and carry you and protect you in the night when you wake up with night sweats. Other gods were accessible, but you could only access them through omens. You'd have to gut animals and look at their livers and try to figure out what they were doing or mix liquids together. Everything was external to the worshiper. It wasn't personal. It was very external. And it was a bit haphazard. But the psalmist here directly talks to God. He says, oh Lord, come with your word. Come find me. The whole psalms records this as a very personal encounter, one that anticipates, cries out for even expects some kind of personal experience with God. Where God's word is, there God is also. You see, it, it was never about a set of rules. 
It was never about just doing the right stuff. It's about diving into the Word of God and finding Him there and finding abundant life there. Scholars of the Psalms, both Christian and Jewish for that matter, interestingly, will say that here the psalmist is intuiting something about the Word of God, that the Word of God is not a thing, but that it's personal. The Word of God is the presence of God. I think we find this in the Gospel writer John when he introduces his Gospel with this extended meditation on who Jesus is. And remember how he starts it. This is John 1.1. In the beginning was what? The Word. You might think, was he talking about a book? No. The Word was with God. And just to be clear, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. Of course, John's not talking about an abstract word. He's talking about Christ himself. And the word became flesh. You see, Jesus is that part of the equation that the psalmist knows he needs. Jesus is the word among us. He's our teacher. He's our rabbi. He's the one who reveals to us who God is. Without him, we're critically and chronically alienated from God himself. However, the opposite is true too, that because of Jesus, because our rabbi has walked with us, because of Christ, we can sing Psalm 119 and we can sing it with confidence, we can sing it with joy, not with tears. We can sing it knowing that we have the word, that he has walked in the way of God's commands and in doing so, he has accomplished for us what the psalmist knows he cannot accomplish for himself. That's why he says, give me the ability to follow your word. We should sing Psalm 119 for ourselves in freedom, knowing that God's word no longer condemns us. It doesn't alienate us from God, but it draws us to him. It helps us meet him there. Like the psalmist, we know that we don't fully keep God's commands, But for those who have thrown in their lot with Jesus, we know that our condemnation for not keeping God's commands is already complete. It was placed on Christ. He wore our guilt for our sakes so that we can engage with God's word without our self-made handcuffs on. Now we're called to pursue God's word in response to Jesus. And we're free to respond to him in thanks. And that raises the question, God's word is true, if it's powerful, if it's present with us in Christ and through his spirit, then how ought we now to engage God's word? And I would say any way that you can. A lot of people struggle with this. They struggle with sitting down with this ancient text written in ancient Semitic times and later in ancient Hellenistic times. They like it in theory, but it's a struggle to do in practice. So I want to end with this. We, we have to acknowledge that it's not always easy to read God's Word. That, that, our, that our, our brains have even been changing over the last few decades, making it maybe even harder for us to read God's Word in a way that generations before us might have. It's, it's difficult to have a book with you, a codex, a Bible at all times so that you can open it up. So I would encourage you in light of Christ, in in light of who God's word is and what it is, 
that we find whatever means possible to delve into it. Some 15 years ago, so this is a while ago in the whole internet revolution time, Nicholas Carr was writing in the Atlantic Monthly, and he was writing about the fact that uh, you know, neurologists are starting to realize that there's a change happening in our brains as we all get more engaged with online and digital technologies. His article was called, Is Google Making Us Stupid? And he concluded with this, I don't know what the change is, but it's something Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, but now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. I would encourage you, in whatever way you can engage with God's word, find it. If the old model that you learned in college isn't working out, find a new model. If the longer passages intimidate you, read shorter sections and focus on them longer. I had one professor in telling me how to keep up with my Hebrew. He said, just do five minutes a day. Don't even set like a verse limit. Just do five minutes. And once you're done with the five minutes, stop and put it down. But stay in it. If you like like reading your Bible on your phone, read it on your phone. If you like reading a few verses at a time, read a few verses at a time. If you like listening to it, it's interesting. I hear people say, well, people just listen to their Bibles now. They don't read them. You know that for most of human history, that's how you had God's Word. You were listening to it. You were not looking at it. Listen to it. Read it with other people. Read it with your friends in your church. Read it with people who died centuries ago. Yes, our brains are changing, but that does not alleviate our need and our desire for God's word. Because if what the psalmist is saying is true, then this is how we engage in God's word. And this is how we find abundant life. As a matter of fact, this is how God changes us. This is how he renews us. Theologians call this the work of sanctification, that is holy making. God makes us holy by our engagement with his word. God makes us into the kind of people who we are in Christ through the renewal that comes through the spirit attending to the word of God. Some Christians believe, well, no, God's involved in my conversion. God is the one who brings me to faith. God is the one who forgives me for my sins. But after that, it's up to me. If you hold that view, you are underestimating God's personal and ongoing work in the life of the believer to make you into the sort of person that God has called you to be. Yes, he does this behind the scenes. There are all those stories. You've heard them. Maybe you've experienced them. You become a Christian and all of a sudden some addiction, some destructive uh, behavior that you had experienced is, is kind of taken away and you just are freed from it. You're relieved of it. Those are wonderful stories. I love hearing about them. They're encouraging to me. But I also don't think, as someone who's involved in the work of the church, I don't think that's how God usually changes us. Yes, he works behind the, sta- the, the scenes, but he's also working on the stage of our consciousness. He's working on us, engaging him through his word, prayerfully, in community, in relationship. You see, the fully-orbed, spiritually rich, God-centered life is one in which the follower of God is pursuing God by conforming himself and being conformed to the Word of God, who, yes, is a person. It's worth yearning for because it changes everything. Let's close in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we do lift up this time to you. I pray as we prepare for communion, Lord, as we prepare to come to you in this special way, I pray that you prepare our hearts to be conformed to the word that is the word Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us, draw us to you, we pray, in the only way, in the way that only you can, which is through the power of the Spirit of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.